Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slave. Now that opening paragraph, I mean, that just blows me away. This is a sad situation. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her And she kept pouring. And when all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. And then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God. And he said, Go and sell the oil and pay your debts. And you and your sons can live on what is left. Now, have you ever been in that place where things were not going well for you, and you kind of made the statement, well, what else can go wrong? And then it did. You just don't think it can get any worse, and it does. And this poor woman, her husband, was associated with the company of the prophets. He was a good man. He died, left her, and her sons in a place of hardship. And not only had they lost their provider, but he left some debt behind. And I don't want to make a scamp out of this man because he left debt behind. There's an interesting history behind this that Jewish tradition has a lot to say about many different things. We can't always take Jewish history uh, as as uh, truth, but but we can't totally dismiss it either. Sometimes tradition starts getting off track along the way. You know what I mean? But sometimes the tradition points back to exactly what happened. So in this case, just just to entertain the possibility, Jewish tradition says that her husband was Obadiah. Not the Obadiah who wrote the book, but the Obadiah who was the steward, the right-hand man of King Ahab. The Obadiah that even though Ahab was not a godly man and Jezebel was not a godly woman, the Obadiah that whenever Jezebel put out the death contract 
on all of the prophets, Obadiah ran and found a hundred of them and hid them. And the Bible says, and provided them with water and food. And so the tradition is, this man went in debt, taking care of God's prophets. And when he died and she inherited the debt, it was an honest debt. He was trying to do a good thing. Now, is that gospel truth? We don't know. But that is the story that the Jews most firmly believed about this and passed that on. In any case, the man was a good man, and he had a considerable debt, and the creditors came to the widow and said, you need to pay this debt. She said, I can't pay the debt. And they said, well, that's fine. We will take your two sons, and they will be slaves for us until the debt is paid. We don't have a culture like that. But this was very common in that day and age among all the people of the world. As history reveals that it wasn't just, wasn't just the Jews, but there were many different nations and many different cultures. It was quite common to repossess somebody's family, to take them and make them work. And at least in the Jewish tradition, after seven years, a slave could be released. And so it wasn't, it wasn't uh, accommodating a hardship. That doesn't mean they always honored that. You know how people try to get away with things that they're not supposed to get away with? So even though they had a rule they're supposed to re- be released, they didn't always get released. Well, in this case, not only was her husband dead, but, but her two sons, now it looks like they are on the verge of being taken by the creditor and leaving her alone. It, it creates a sad situation. And the one thing that the man who died did leave behind that was good, is he left behind an awareness that when you have a problem, you go to God. She went to Elisha. You're a man of God. My husband was a man of God. I need some help. I wonder if that's been instilled in your family. I wonder how many of you, when your children were still at home, you taught them to pray when they were in trouble. Did you teach them that, or did you hope that they just picked it up by osmosis? Ann and I have been working in connection with daycare for many years, even several years before we we came here. And as long as the daycare is associated with the church, and we are promoting God, Jesus Christ, we've always felt free and and, uh, obligated to teach the kids to pray when you have a need. And kids have needs. You know that. And there's been many times when the children have been in despair and we just say, let's pray. Teaching them where to go for an answer to your needs. She goes to Elisha and explains her difficult situation, and he says, how can I help you? What do you have in your house? Now, she's going to have to get ready for a blessing. 
And in order for us to be prepared for what God can do for us and wants to do for us, the first thing that we probably need to do to really be ready for God's blessing is just go ahead and declare bankruptcy. The fact of the matter is, when we come to the point where we realize we have nothing left that will make any difference in our situation, that's when God really is able to take over. As long as we still think we have something, we still think we've got some resource, we still believe we can take care of our own problems, our own situation, you're probably not ready for God to take over yet. And I've preached on this concept many times, that when you come to the end of yourself, that's when God takes over. When you haven't come to the end of yourself, He's waiting until you do. And the destitute situation that this woman finds herself in makes her a candidate for being blessed by God. What do you have in your house? By her own admission, she declares bankruptcy. I don't have anything except have a small jar of oil. Well, we know what she's saying is, I, I know that that's inadequate for my needs. She was declaring bankruptcy. She needs God. I think that's the reason a lot of people really hesitate to sell out to God. They still have a plan. God, I need you, but I still have some options. And when I exhaust those, or just go ahead and, and forget those, just write them off. You need God. I don't care what you've got left. You've got to say, it's not enough. It's inadequate. You're gambling if you think that you can still go ahead and invest what little you have left, and then you won't need God. You need God. Declare bankruptcy. Now, the particular wording used here for this phrase, the small jar of olive oil, that particular phrase is never used anywhere else in the Bible. This was not referring to her last remaining supply of cooking oil. It was not referring to her last little vial of medicinal olive oil. This was a special jar of olive oil. This wasn't what was left from a previous well-stocked pantry, and now she's down to a little bit of oil. This was a jar of expensive anointing oil typically used for burial. Now, this is speculation at this point, but I believe it, you would acknowledge this is valid speculation. She may have used a part of that when her husband died. And whatever was left was left to provide for her own death. And that's all she had. And it was expensive and it was important to her. It was precious. But we're not talking about Wesson oil here. We're not talking Crisco. There is nothing in this story about cooking oil. 
This was a little flask of some very precious ointment. What do you have in your house? She said, the only thing I've got left, and how pitiful this is, is just my burial ointment. That's it. I need God. I need some help. What I have is not enough. I kind of think that question resonates in our heart today. What do you have in your house? That is, what do you think you've got enough of to solve all your problems? Or are you running out? Or you have, been, have you been stripped of everything? And you're down to whatever you've got left. It may be precious to you, but is it enough? That question, what do you have in your house? It's a question that speaks of reliance on personal resources. If I ask you, what do you have in your house? And you say, well, I've got a good bank account. We're set. You don't need God. Well, you do need God, but you think you have it handled yourself. If we're going to make the application of this, it doesn't imply that we have to be totally stripped of all possessions before God is ready and willing to meet our needs. But it does mean we have to say, whatever I have, it's not enough. I can't make it work. It means we're not going to try and rely on our own wisdom and strength to resolve our problems. It means that we confess before God bankruptcy. We're insolvent. We're in too deep. We'll never get out. We can never recover. The debt is eating you up. Not just a financial debt, but the debt of of the needs and the crisis that is upon you is greater than your resources. And so here you are, bankrupt. Hell owns the mortgage. And hell comes to foreclose. And now it's getting into flesh. It's taking all of your goods. Now it's taking your family. You know people that hell owns the mortgage and it's come to take your family. It's come to take your husband. It's come to break your marriage up. It's come to spiritually steal your children, to rob you of your family heritage. It means we have a little bit, but we know it'll never do the job. And whatever it is, we're willing to take what's left and invest it in God's plan. Because His is a better plan than ours is. Whatever we're willing to turn loose of, whatever little bit we have left, Instead of clinging to it like it's really going to make a difference, we invest it in God's recovery plan. Preparing for that blessing. Preparing for God to have the answer. God should not be a last resort. We make Him a last resort. But why not make Him the first resort? Now you've got this phenomenon of the godly overflow. God loves 
overflow. I think I've capitalized that on your notes. But I want this to be one of these takeaway points for you. God loves overflow. When God fed the children of Israel with manna, there was always manna left over. And if they tried to store it, it rotted by the next day. But there was plenty. You see, God doesn't worry about waste like we do. He's not concerned about it. Because he's got plenty where that came from. But he loves overflow. When God brought forth water out of the rock in the Old Testament, there was enough for every man, woman, child, beast. There was enough. And when they were all fed, there was plenty of water. It wasn't like there was just enough. There was an ample supply. When Jesus multiplied the bread... And the fish, he didn't just feed 5,000. They just gathered up the scraps when they were left over and had 12 baskets because God loves overflow. And then he taught his disciples this because he loves overflow. He said, now, if you learn to give, it will be given back to you. And you know what the rest of the wording is here. You know the measure in which it will be given back because God loves overflow. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over, it will be poured into your lap, some of the translations say. I like that. Abundance. Overflow. Now, Ann and I have lived in the mountains for a few years in our ministry. And in the high altitude, it changes, the, the, the atmospheric pressure changes a bag of potato chips where they're all bloated up. They're tight. And how many of you know that disclaimer on the bag of potato chips? Some settling of contents may have occurred during shipping. So you got this big old pooching bag of potato chips and when you open it up and you look inside, it's half filled. Half potato chips and half air. How disappointing. But God's not trying to sell you a bloated bag of potato chips. He likes overflow. He gives an overflow, and he says if you can live right, you can expect to receive overflow. Now, I don't want to get over into this name it, claim it, and, and positive confession, and God's going to make you rich kind of a thing, because that's not what I'm talking about. Let's just lay all that aside. I'm talking about if you have a giving spirit, God will make sure that you receive back in compensation in people being giving to you and caring to you and understanding whatever you are giving, however you are meeting out, that if you have a generous spirit, that you can expect more to come back than you ever put out. Now, that is as clear of a Bible doctrine as I can imagine. Jesus said it right here. Why would there ever be a stingy Christian? 
I don't understand that unless we just simply are not walking in faith. And Elisha multiplied the oil, oversaw the miraculous event of the multiplication of the oil, and filled every vessel they were able to find. And essentially, there was enough to pay the debt. And then her two sons were going to live off of the overflow. Because God loves overflow. The second point I want you to understand from this is God doesn't deal in the cheap stuff. We have no record of God making provision with cheap imitation stuff. We don't have any record of him dealing in second-hand junk. God gives the good stuff. We have this story in the New Testament about the day that Jesus performed his first miracle. Now, let me back up just a little bit, and you're going to think I'm losing my way, but I'm not losing my way. I might be losing my mind, but I'm not losing my way here. The Gospel of John does not start off like the other Gospels, not, not like Matthew, not like Luke. There is no uh, account of the birth of the Savior. There is no account of his childhood, however brief it might be in the others. John just starts right off introducing people to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and was God. He introduces him, and he declares him to be God from the very beginning. Then he quickly goes through, and he came unto his own, and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave him power to become the sons of God. And then he moves to Jesus collecting his disciples. And it starts off with there were two disciples of John who saw the ministry of Jesus, and they switched teams. They left John, and they started following Jesus. And one of those was Andrew. And Andrew had a brother, and he was so excited about a new leader, he goes and, and, and gets, uh, he gets Peter, Simon Peter, and he says, follow this guy. Let's follow him. So Peter takes Andrew's advice, and, and now they've got... Andrew, and the unnamed disciple of John, and they've got Peter. And then uh, Jesus finds Philip, and Philip thinks this is a good deal. And uh, then they find Nathaniel, and Philip says to Nathaniel, said, let's follow this man. And Nathaniel says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Then Jesus comes along and he uses the word of knowledge to tell Nathaniel, uh, I saw you under that tree talking to Philip, wondering if any good thing could come out. Well, when did you see me? Well, see, Jesus just knew that. And Nathaniel said, that's good enough for me. I'm following him. It didn't take much to convince him. So now he's got five followers. This is real early in Jesus' ministry. And this is going to be great. These men have given up literally everything to follow Jesus. They're not keeping part-time jobs. They don't have a foot in the world, a foot in heaven. They're, they're giving it all up. They're going to follow Jesus. They're going to sell out and follow him because this is going to be a ride. There's going to be ministry. 
And we have to know from the conversations Jesus had with them that he did warn them, guys, this is going to be tough sometimes. This is going to be hardships sometimes. You're giving up a lot, and sometimes you'll want to quit. This is not going to be all fun and games. This is really going to be rough. Are you really up for it? And they, they steeled themselves. I believe we are. I believe we can do this. All right, be prepared for anything. Well, Mary, the mother of Jesus, gets an invitation. And she decides on this day she's going to go to a wedding feast. And Jesus says, we're going too. So he goes to the men and said, men, your first mission is we're going to go to a wedding. Now, I don't think that was the hardships they were really thinking they were going to be facing. They go to the wedding. It's a fascinating story. In the course of this event, they ran out of wine, and Mary comes to Jesus and said, we're out of wine. The whole thing has multiple layers of questions. Why? Why do you care? Mary, unless she's something like my wife and she's in the middle of everything. Either Mary has to be right in the middle of everything or she got invited to help put this thing on. But nevertheless, she makes it her business when she goes to this wedding to see to it everything's going okay. She goes into operation mode. And she comes to Jesus, and she says, we're out of wine. And Jesus has the same response every man in this building would have. Why are you involving me? That's exactly what he said. Why are you involving me? My time has not come. Now, here's what Mary did. This is very interesting. She said, we're out of wine. He said, why are you involving me? It's not my time. And she said to the servants... You do whatever he said, and she walks out. That's it. You can tell by what Mary did. She expected results. She wasn't going to argue the point. It's not my time. Deal with it. I'm not going to stand here and argue. And she lines it up and said, you'll do something. I don't have time to argue. You do whatever he says. So whenever she leaves the room, There's nothing left for Jesus to do but to obey mom. So he says, I guess it is my time. Who would have thought? He sees the six water pots that would hold water for ceremonial washing. And he notices that they're empty. And he tells the servants, go get some water, fill the water pots, and when the water pots are filled, dip it out and serve the people. It's this tremendous miracle that we don't see the transformation, but we know water went in and wine came out. We know that. So they fill it up and they serve it, and the guests one taste, and they say, this is the good stuff. And they start inquiring, why did you save the good stuff to last? Most people will serve the good stuff while they're still sober enough to appreciate it. 
And then when they get drunk, they'll bring out the rock gut. Because nobody cares anymore. And see, when Jesus created this wine, it was so good that it penetrated through their drunken stupor. It didn't make them drunk. It made them aware. It was the good stuff. It didn't dull their senses. It brought them to their senses. They were having a a pickled brain good time until they got a hold of the good stuff. And all of a sudden they go, wow, this is different. What is this stuff? Where'd you get this? My son made it. Only the good stuff. He doesn't make the cheap stuff. He doesn't make the bad stuff. God only deals in the good stuff. So Elisha says, take that small flask of olive oil that you have and go and gather up vessels. And don't ask for just a few vessels. Now that's key in this story. She was not going to go up to a house and say, do you have a couple of jars I can borrow? Her orders were to go and say, I need some jars. And they say, how many? She says, I'll take everything you've got. Everything. I don't want a couple. I want every container you've got in the house. And as they went door to door, they did exactly what the prophet told them to do. Ask for it all. Get every, wipe them out, clean them out. And when they have given you everything, either that they have or that they are willing to give, then that's going to be adequate. So they went to the neighbors. They gathered it up. They brought it back to the house. They shut the door. And she took this little jar of oil. And it's kind of like the feeding of the 5,000 with just the bread and the fish. It was not enough. But with God, it's enough. And she was the first one to get to witness this this power of, of multiplication. It was phenomenal. She took this little flask and she began to pour And it poured and poured and poured and poured until it filled a much larger vessel. Well, isn't that interesting? Bring me another one. And she poured and poured and it filled. And they went through this with every vessel that they had gathered. And she poured and filled the final vessel and not knowing that there was no more. And she said to her sons, bring me another one. They said, that's it. It's done. We have no more vessels. And the Bible says, and the oil stayed. It was done. It was over. Most of you have heard this sermon preached by somebody. Most of you have heard somebody preaching this sermon speculate. Now, if they'd have just gotten more vessels... The problem with this story is they ran out of vessels. If they'd have had a thousand more, they'd have had that much more. And I think if you go there, you miss the point of the story completely. It's not about what might have been. It's about the sufficiency 
of doing exactly what God said and then God taking care of your needs. We're getting over into greed when we're wondering about, oh, I just wish we'd have had 500 more jars. Think what we could have done with that. See, the value was not in the quantity. The value was in the quality. God values quality over quantity. That's another capitalization you take with you today. And no matter where you apply that in your life, you understand it's not how much you do for God. It's how well you do for God. He values quality over quantity. For the little woman that comes to the temple treasury and drops a penny in, it's not about quantity. It's about quality. She gave all that she had. It's always been like that. You come and you say, I don't have much talent. It's not about the quantity. It's not about how many instruments you can play. It's not about how many languages you can speak in. It's just merely about the quality of your faith and giving your life to Jesus Christ and say, God, I don't bring much with me. It's a little bitty flask of oil. God said, I can make do with that. It's okay. I can do with that. There is no excuse for not stepping out with God because God will multiply it to meet the need plus overflow. She did exactly what she was told to do. She was obedient to the letter of the command. And the final thing about this is, notice that God gives this woman a hand up and not a hand out. Now, there were a few times that Jesus gave a hand out. But he didn't do it as a major portion, a significant feature of his ministry. He fed 5,000 people. That was a handout. But he didn't get a lot of followers. All he got, I mean, sincere people ready to be disciples. All All he did was draw a bunch of hungry people. A bunch of people wanting another miracle. So he did it sparingly. And it should, it should define the mission of the church as well. Handouts, we understand, happen from time to time. But hand-ups are what we're really wanting to give to people. To get them to another level in life. When, when this woman obeyed the command of Elisha and filled the pots, notice the order of things. He said, first, go and pay your debt. Look at the person sitting next to you and see if you think they heard that. Size them up. If they got their eyes closed and their head bowed, they probably didn't. So I'm going to repeat it. Now everybody ready? The first thing you do is you pay your debts. You take care of yourself next because you owe somebody. That is their money. That's not your money. You cannot spend their money again. You pay what somebody else has loaned you. It is their money. It belongs to them. That is the godly thing. That is the spiritual, scriptural order. Don't you be living off their money time and again. And I've seen that happen so many times in people's lives. 
They want to take what they owe somebody else and go live it up. Uh-uh. God's not going to bless you if you don't take care of your obligations first. You're going to bless you, but God's not going to bless you. And your blessings don't last. You pay your debts. And then you can live on what's left over. Well, God being the God of abundance, God being the God of overflow, this is fascinating. He didn't just give this woman a handout. He put her in the oil business. She is now selling oil. And by the implication of the scripture, when the prophet said, you can live off of that, you know how I take that? She can live off this. She didn't get a handout. She got industrious. She got into the business. She could now sell and make do for her and her sons. I'll tell you what, God doesn't just kind of help you out. When you are obedient to him, he isn't stingy. He's got all this overflow. That's what I'm talking about when I'm saying overflow. You can live off that. The Holy Spirit didn't just come and visit his power on Jerusalem on that single day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago. When God said, I'll pour out my spirit, there was overflow to the rest of the world, and it's still overflowing today. There was abundance when Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And then in return, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. That indicates to me copious amounts, overflow. That wasn't just for the people that day. The overflow that saturates the world, it still flows today and for every generation to come. And when Jesus said that he came here to set people free, he didn't come and get you just a single get-out-of-jail card. Use it once, and it expires. There's a superabundance. There was an overflow. He didn't say, I come to make you kind of free. He said, I came to set you free indeed. That's complete. That's overflow. That's everything. He doesn't do it the cheap way. He goes big. What's not to love about God? I conclude with these thoughts, when you think you've been through the hardest times, when you thought it couldn't get any worse, but somehow it did, and you feel like you've been decimated and you don't have very much left, dedicate whatever you have to the Lord. Give it to God. If you've got faith that is tattered and worn, just give it to God. He'll multiply it. Are you down to nothing but that smart, small jar of oil that you didn't ever dream you would have to sell or give away? Is that the only thing of value you have left dedicated to God? God will multiply your limited resources. But there's three things you have to do. Look to Him for the answers. Obey His commands without question and without variation. And take care of your debts before you take care of yourself. And God will take care of you. That is the promise of God. Bow your heads.